The following audio is from Two Pillars Church, a gospel-centered, missionally-focused church located in Lincoln, Nebraska. More information about Two Pillars Church can be found at www.twopillarschurch.com. Well, if the enemy can't get Christians to divide over major issues, oftentimes he'll try to use smaller ones, okay? Secondary issues, maybe even third-order issues, what Paul calls here in Romans 14, verse 1, opinions. Right? It's not primary issues that Paul is talking about here, but tertiary ones. Issues that the Bible is not explicit on. Issues that the, the Bible isn't clear on. They're matters of conscience. God's Word does not specifically address one way or the other for them. There's a lot of them. There's a lot of things that fall into this category when you think about it. Right? The Bible is not an encyclopedia of ethics telling us you know exactly what to do in every single situation or every single decision that we make, which means we won't always agree on tertiary issues. What happens when that happens? <laughs> Let me throw out some examples here just to make sure that we all understand how very applicable this passage is, right? Can a Christian drink alcohol? Right? Should, should a Christian play D&D? Right? Uh, what about yoga? <laughs> what, what about how you school your children. What kinds of music can a Christian listen to? Yes, I said musics, I guess, plural. What about movies? Movies. What about modesty? Is there a specific dress code that we have to adhere to? Can you wear a hat on Sunday mornings? Can you, what about tattoos? Are they in or out? What do we do with those? We got to get them removed? What? What do we do? Can you be a Christian and vote for a Democrat? Can you be a Christian and vote for a Republican? Must all Christians get a COVID vaccine? What about smoking? See, there's all kinds of issues. If, if we took each one of those, just one by one, one at a time, and we kind of tossed it out here in this room and said, hey, let's just chop it up a little bit, right? You know what we would find? We would find that we have a lot of disagreements on some of these issues, don't we? But what I want you to understand this morning is that those are tertiary issues, the Bible isn't explicit about them. And what I'm passionate about, because Paul's passionate about it, is the gospel of Jesus uniting us despite our differences over tertiary issues, and the same gospel of Jesus guarding us from dividing over those tertiary issues. See, what was going on in the church in Rome was that there were, some, there were some controversial issues that were coming up, things that they didn't agree on. We should expect that when the gospel reaches a ragtag group of people like us, Right? For the church in Rome, the issues appeared to have revolved around table fellowship and the observance of, of certain days, and they were quarreling over opinions. One person believes that he can eat anything, verse 2 says, while the, person, the weak person eats only vegetables. Verse 5, one person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. And then in verse 21, in addition to mentioning the veggie-only versus steak debate, right, Paul adds the drinking of wine into the conversation. That was an issue that they were dealing with too. These were their tertiary issues, issues of opinion that they were quarreling over. Remember the church there was made up of both Jewish and Gentile Christians, they had some differences, okay? They didn't agree on everything. In fact, back then, dietary rules and, and Sabbath festival days were the clearest boundary markers that distinguished Jews from Gentiles. I mean, think about the Jewish Christians for a minute. 
that they had been culturally conditioned, okay, religiously conditioned, in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures, for generations upon generations on some of these matters. The specific ones that are being addressed in Romans 14. Eating unclean food and violating the Sabbath to them were, were major hallmarks of covenant unfaithfulness. And conversely, abstaining from unclean food and strict adherence to the Sabbath or the festival days was a mark of faithfulness to God. But now they're united together with these Gentile Christians who don't do any of that stuff. And as those united together in Christ, they've got to work out these differences. Again, this happens anywhere the gospel reaches multiple people groups, and the people groups can be as distinct as first century Jews or Christians or as similar as 21st century American Republicans and Democrats. Right? But also, this is kind of the point of the whole scripture. Do you remember Romans 1? Remember what Paul said in Romans 1? He wasn't ashamed of the gospel. Why? For it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, to the Jew first and also the Greek. Like, the gospel doesn't care if you're a Jew or a Greek. It just doesn't. It unites across Jew and Greek. Anyone can get in on this. For there is no distinction, Romans 10.12 told us, there's no distinction between Jew and Greek, for the same Lord is Lord over all, bestowing his riches on all who call on him, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. This is what the gospel does, friends. It's the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. It unites across a whole host of tertiary issues. It unites despite our disagreements over tertiary issues. What you eat and what special days you celebrate or observe are tertiary issues when it comes to the gospel. And this wasn't just a minor issue. Right? This isn't a minor issue. The, the gospel uniting us despite our disagreements over tertiary issues is not in and of itself a tertiary issue. It's primary. What was going on in the church in Rome was the quarreling over opinions. The opinions themselves were very tertiary. They were tertiary issues. But how that gets played out, how the quarreling is resolved, is a primary issue to Paul. It's a primary issue in the Bible. That's why we have Romans 14. Why is it primary? Why is it critical? Because nothing less than the work of salvation across Jews and Gentiles and to the ends of the earth depends on it. Do you see that? Jews and Gentiles, East Asians and Africans, South Americans and North Americans, homebrewers and teetotalers, Republicans and Democrats, vax and anti-vax, tattoos and none, the unity of the church and the global glory of God depends on how we answer this question, what do we do when we disagree over a tertiary issue? This is a primary thing, guys. And Paul's going to tell us exactly what to do, but first, we need to get straight in our minds who he's talking about when he refers to a weak Christian and a strong one. 
Paul refers explicitly to the weak Christian throughout chapter 14. He refers implicitly to the strong Christian up until chapter 15, verse 1, where he names the strong Christian explicitly. But all throughout chapter 14, he's contrasting. Did you notice that when Andrew was reading? He's contrasting the weak and the strong. We can pull some of the contrasts out like this. The strong, the strong Christian, verse 2, believes he may eat anything. The weak Christian, in contrast, second half of the same verse, eats only vegetables, which sounds miserable. Sounds miserable, right? The strong Christian, verse 5, esteems all days alike. The weak Christian, in contrast, also in verse 5, esteems one day as better than another. The strong Christian, in addition to eating anything he likes, including meat, verse 21 adds, also he was apparently comfortable with drinking. The strong Christian's are. The weak Christian, it's implied, was not. In fact, it appears that the eating of meat and the drinking of wine by the strong Christians had a propensity to cause the weaker Christians to stumble. And we're going to come back to what it means to stumble here in just a little bit. But for now, look at these contrasts. Look at how Scripture is defining the strong and the weak here. And notice, Paul is not saying either one's in sin. Whether you eat meat or not, whether you observe certain days or not, whether you drink wine or not, these are not sin issues. Gluttony is, idolatry is, drunkenness is, sloth is. All of those are clearly sin in the Bible, but none of that's what's going on here. None of that's what's being addressed. See, we have to do careful exegesis of this text. We can't be lazy. Lazy exegesis of this text will lead us to view what's going on here in terms of legalism and licentiousness. But neither are what's in view. The weak Christian in Romans 14 is not a legalist. They're not adding to the gospel like we see, for example, in the book of Galatians. The weak in Romans 14 are not Judaizers, but Jewish Christians. Paul is not saying, knock it off with all the extra rules that you're adding to salvation. That's the definition of a legalist, by the way. It's when you add something to the gospel and say it's the gospel plus that something that equals true faith in Christ. In Galatians, it was the gospel plus circumcision. That's what the Judaizers were teaching. In our day, it's, most recently, it seems like it's been politics. I literally heard two people within our church say in 2020, um, I don't think you can be a Christian and vote for a Republican. And another person say, I don't think you can be a Christian and vote for a Democrat. That's legalism. It's adding to the gospel of Jesus. It's saying Jesus plus political party. Neither of those individuals are here anymore, by the way. Not because we asked them to leave. Their legalism led them away. We don't stand for legalism around here. And when they discovered that, they left of their own accord. We don't stand for legalism. Paul didn't either. He was quick to rebuke it. Quick to point out that it's not the gospel at all. And that anytime you add to the gospel, you end up with something different than the gospel. And if you don't have the gospel, you're not really a Christian. You're missing it. Paul reserves some of his strongest words for people like this in his letters. Remember how he talked to the Galatians? He said, hey, if anybody comes to you with, a, with a, a different gospel, let them be accursed, he says. But that's not what was going on in Rome. 
But Paul refers to those who disagree with each other throughout this passage as brothers. Verse 10, verse 13, verse 15 and 21. Also as those who've been welcomed by God, verse 3, or accepted by God. Some translations say servants of the Lord, verse 4. Seeking to honor the Lord, verse 5. The weak, who were most likely Jewish Christians, were not legalists, but they were culturally conditioned. And understandably so. They're weak, not on the gospel, but on the outworkings of the gospel. They haven't yet fully grasped the freedom in Christ that they have. They're, I don't use this word in a derogatory sense whatsoever, but they're immature in their faith. They're, they're not sure if something is right or wrong. They're indecisive. They don't have freedom of conscience is probably one of the best ways to put it. The strong, in contrast, have an incredible grasp on their freedom in Christ. They didn't bring, the, the, think about the Gentiles, they didn't bring all that sort of cultural conditioning, the religious cultural conditioning with them into their relationship with Jesus and the church. And in that way, they're strong. They're not licentious. They're not in sin either. They're strong in their faith, Paul says. More mature in what it means to live out the gospel. The strong, as Paul refers to them, were most likely Gentile Christians, although those categories aren't airtight, right? Because Paul's going to associate with the strong. Additionally, it's important to note that the weak in Romans 14 are not those who are easily swayed to overt sin. They're not weak in the sense that they're easily given to excess and overindulgence. That's not weakness, that's called blatant sin. The problem with the weak is not that they'll fall off the wagon, so to say. The problem is that they are violating their own conscience, their own convictions. This is why Paul refers to the weak in verse 23 as having doubts and being condemned if he eats. It's an internal condemnation for someone who there is no condemnation in Christ. But there's an internal condemnation, not the breaking of clear moral imperatives that we have in Scripture. Otherwise, Paul would say, repent. This is really important for us to understand as we seek to apply this and how we think about the strong and the weak, right? So, for example, if I'm a Christian and I own a restaurant that serves up tasty, amazing gourmet burgers, for example, right? Gourmet burgers and fries. If a weak Christian comes into my restaurant... The weak Christian of Romans 14 is not one who comes in and ends up eating three burgers and falls into a gluttonous coma. If that were the case, we might apply Romans 14 as saying that a Christian can never own a restaurant that serves up amazing tasty burgers and fries. He's causing weaker brothers or sisters to stumble. No, the glutton in this fictitious example is just in sin. Fully culpable. And making it the restaurant's owner's responsibility, putting the onus on the Christian restaurant owner would be, in a sense, passing blame. When what needs to happen instead is for the glutton to exercise self-control and walk in repentance. There's no clear rule in Scripture that I've found that dictates how tasty of a burger a Christian can make. He's not responsible in that way for the gluttonous Christian's sin. Now, Jesus does say in the Gospels, that it's better to have a, a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea. In just case you wonder, that's drowning and, and you're going to die that way, right? He says it's, it's better to have a millstone tied around your neck and be thrown into the sea than to cause a believing child 
to sin. But that also has to be squared with this in Romans 14. Using Romans 14 categories and good exegesis, which means interpreting the scriptures, the weak Christian is not a glutton, but rather someone who, because of their conscience, isn't sure that they should be eating meat at all to begin with. It's a difference. You see why we have to be careful with this text? John Stott, the late John Stott, summarizes it this way. He says, if we're trying to picture a weaker brother or sister... We must not envision a vulnerable Christian easily overcome by temptation, but a sensitive Christian full of indecision and scruples. What the weak lack is not self-control, but liberty of conscience. So the weak of Romans 14 are not legalists. They're not easily swayed to overt sin. Additionally, it's not a sin to be weak. Paul doesn't chastise the weak in this passage. He doesn't rebuke them or tell them to repent. In fact, most of his instruction is directed at the strong, to bear with the weak in love. That doesn't mean he doesn't desire the weak to grow strong. It's a good thing to desire the weak to grow strong and even to gently, kindly, patiently labor to that end. I think we inherently understand that to be a good thing. Paul himself identifies with the strong. We who are strong, he says in chapter 15, verse 1. He's not trying to reduce the the Christian community there in Rome down to the, the lowest common denominator. In fact, by writing this way, to the strong and the weak, there's an implicit call to the weak to grow strong, to mature up into their understanding of their freedom in Christ. Last point that I'll make under careful exegesis, not every person who abstains does so because they're weak. Abstinence per se is not equivalent with weakness. Motives and conscience determine that. So for example, if someone abstains from drinking alcohol, that doesn't make them a weak Christian. There's all kinds of reasons that you might abstain from alcohol. You might just not like the taste of it. You might abstain because of family history with alcoholism. Or your own sin struggles in the past or the present. That doesn't make you weak. That makes you strong. But a different kind of strong than what Paul's talking about in Romans 14. Likewise, someone here this morning might be a vegetarian. You know, not because of your scruples and a lack of clarity on whether you should eat meat as a Christian or not. But rather for health reasons. Or or a concern out of the treatment of animals in some contexts. So we understand some things now about the strong and the weak. We're, we're trying to do careful exegesis with this text and not overapply it, not underapply it. Let's say, let's just say, let's say we have a tertiary issue come up now in the life of our church or in the life of your gospel community or amongst some of your friends. You, you've looked to Scripture. Scripture isn't clear on the issue. It doesn't say, you shall do this, you shall not do this. It's not a clear sin issue like sexual immorality or idolatry or drunkenness, or coveting. There's broad disagreement amongst mature, you know, Jesus-loving, Bible-honoring Christians on the issue. So what do you do? What do we do when we disagree on a tertiary issue? Well, Paul tells us four things to do in this text. Actually, he tells us way more than that, but I'm, being, I'm trying to roll it up for you a little bit here. Four things to do when we disagree on a tertiary issue. Number one, welcome one another. Welcome one another. Look at verse 1. As for the one who is weak in faith, welcome him. Not to quarrel over opinions. 
One person believes he may eat anything while the weak person eats only vegetables. Let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains and let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats for God has welcomed them. All right, so the first thing that we're to do when we disagree on a tertiary issue is to welcome the other person that we disagree with. Why? Because God has welcomed him. That's why. God has welcomed him. God has welcomed her. Some translations have, uh, instead of welcome, have receive or accept. The idea is the same, right? We're to receive the one we disagree with, uh, um, accept the one we disagree with, welcome them. Why? Because God has received them. God has accepted them. God has welcomed them. Jesus has died for their sins. They've been welcomed into the family of God. And so how dare we not also welcome one another? Who are we to reject a person that God has received? Think about it. God God is at work saving a people for himself himself amongst all people across the earth. I don't know if you realize, there's there's a few different cultures on this planet, okay? Um, People who look different than you, people who smell different than you, people who think different about you, bring different baggage into the relationship with Jesus and, and, and you, you know, into the equation. He's working to glorify himself, though God is working to glorify himself through all these people who he sent Jesus to die for. How dare we reject someone he's accepted and welcomed? Instead, we are to treat the one we disagree with the way God has treated them with welcome. Not making them feel like a weirdo or a legalist. Or a licentious believer. We're to make them feel at home. Welcome. You're amongst brothers and sisters. You're part of a family. Come on in. The strong, he says, are not to despise the weak. He says that in verse 3. That's important, we know, because the, the temptation of the strong is to ridicule the sensitivities of the weak. I've felt that before. Or to feel superior to the weak because they're more mature, more advanced, more enlightened in their freedom in Christ. The temptation of the strong is to look down their nose upon the weak and point out their narrow-mindedness, point out their prudeness, viewing them even as legalistic. Don't despise the weak, Paul says to the strong. Welcome them. Likewise, the weak are to not pass judgment on the strong. It cuts both ways, doesn't it? The counter-temptation for the weak, see, is to censure the strong, condemn the strong, denouncing them for what sometimes appears to them as license. At its worst, it's, it's not full-on legalism on the part of the weak, but it's experienced that way by the strong, causing the strong sometimes even question their own freedom in Christ. It goes both ways. One author summarizes it this way. He says, the strong tend to take the weak too lightly, to not give them enough weight because they see them as being legalistic. The weak tend to take the strong too seriously and will be deeply troubled and upset by what they see as their licentiousness. Instead of all that, Paul says, (laughs) welcome one another. Welcome one another. Welcome one another because through Christ, God has welcomed them and you. So the first thing that we're to do when we experience disagreement on a tertiary issue is to welcome one another. The second thing that we're to do is to be fully convinced. Look at verse 5. He says, One person esteems one day as better than another, while another esteems all days alike. Each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. 
The one who observes the day observes it in honor of the Lord. The one who eats, eats in honor of the Lord since he gives thanks to God. While the one who abstains, abstains in honor of the Lord and gives thanks to God. For none of us lives to himself and none of us dies to himself. For if we live, we live to the Lord. And if we die, we die to the Lord. So then, whether we live or whether we die, we are the Lord's. For to this end, Christ died and lived again. That he might be both Lord, he might be Lord both of the dead and the living. So Paul is saying here, we live before the Lord, all of us do. Strong and weak. Jesus died and, and lived again and is Lord over us all. Each of us are to live for him whether you're weak or strong. And so be fully convinced, each should be fully convinced that you are living for and honoring God. Can you do what you're doing before him? Is it honoring to him? Be fully convinced, Paul says. Don't be, don't be fuzzy on the matter. Don't be wishy-washy. Develop your convictions. Search the scriptures. Make sure it's not clear, because it might be. Talk it out with other mature believers. Look for biblical principles that might apply. Don't, don't, don't just do what everybody else is doing around you. Don't just do what you feel like you're supposed to do because of maybe a particular upbringing. Be fully convinced. Think it out. Prayerfully before the Lord. Paul did. Look, look at verse 14. He says, in verse 14, he says, I know and am persuaded in the Lord Jesus, that nothing is unclean in itself, but it is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. Paul wasn't wishy-washy. Paul had a settled conviction on the matter. He fully and firmly aligns with the strong in this passage. He knows, he's persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ. He knew the teachings of Jesus and how he came and fulfilled the ceremonial law and how he taught in Mark 7, for example, that it's not what goes into your body that defiles you. It's what comes out of your heart. That's the problem. He'd likely spoken with Peter about the vision that Peter had in Acts 10 at some point about what was clean and unclean and therefore he knows, is persuaded in the Lord Jesus Christ. He's fully convinced. He knows because he wrote it, 1 Timothy 4.4, that everything created by God is good and nothing is to be rejected if it's received with thanksgiving. He's fully convinced that the strong don't need to repent in this instant. Fully convinced that the weak need to grow. And yet, in his fully convinced state, he doesn't flaunt it. Verse 22, the faith that you have, keep between yourself and God. Blessed is the one who has no reasons to pass judgment on himself for what he approves. Paul's saying here is you don't have to go around rubbing your convictions in everyone's face. But do be fully convinced yourself. And when you're fully convinced, you have no reason to pass judgment on yourself for what you approve. That's a freeing feeling. You'll have a clear conscience before the Lord that you are, in fact, living for Him. That's very freeing. 
Verse 23, but whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats because the eating is not from faith for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. To have doubts in the context of Romans 14 doesn't mean like I'm questioning whether Jesus was really God or if, if, he, if the Trinity is really a thing or if Jesus is, is really died on the cross for our sins. That's not what he's talking about. He's not talking about the big things of God. In, in, in context here, to have doubts is to question your own stance on the tertiary issue. It's to say, I, 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 don't, I don't think this is right, but perhaps I'll do it anyway. I, I'm not sure if doing X, Y, and Z is the right way or not, but I'll do it anyway. If you say, I'm not sure, that's the doubt that Paul's talking about here. And you'll have a condemned conscience if you go through with it. You're violating your conscience. If you go through with it, you'll have a condemned conscience. You're not operating out of faith in that way, Paul says. And what does not proceed from faith is sin. It's sinning against your conscience. The way to rid yourself of doubts is to be fully convinced. So be fully convinced. If you're not fully convinced and you go through with it, you're going to hurt your conscience. You're going to feel guilty even if you're not. And yet now you're ignoring the feelings of guilt in some ways to go through with it. You're numbing your conscience. That's not a good thing. You're ignoring your conscience. That's dangerous. Because it could lead you down the road to become more open to doing other things that are truly wrong. But since you've grown accustomed to ignoring your conscience, you might become convinced that it's not that big a deal. It's a huge deal. And so Paul says, be fully convinced. The third thing that we're told here is to not pass judgment. This flows from the prior point because if the strong and the weak are seeking to honor the Lord, which is what he said back in verse 6, if both live and die under Christ's lordship, then there's no room for us to be judging. Verse 10. Why do you pass judgment on your brother? Or you. I love this part. Or you. <laughs> you. Why do you despise your brother? For we will all stand before the judgment seat of God. For it is written, as I live, says the Lord, every knee shall bow to me, every tongue shall confess to God. So then each of us will give an account of himself to God. Look what Paul is saying. He, Paul is saying here that judging your brother is not your job. Stay in your lane, bro. That's, that's the modern translation. You know? And you might say, wait a second, didn't Paul tell us doesn't Paul tell us in 1 Corinthians 5 to judge our brother? <laughs> he does. But the context there is different than the context here. This is why we have to be careful with how we handle God's word. The context in 1 Corinthians 5 is not tertiary issues or opinions. It's clear, blatant sin. The context of Romans 14 is not clear, blatant sin. It's tertiary issues. We're absolutely to judge one another in the context of the body of Christ and confront one another and rebuke one another when there is clear and blatant sin. But on tertiary issues, Paul says, we're not. That's not our job. And we're not lifestyle police handing out citations of judgment to others who don't make the same decisions as we do on tertiary issues. We're not to condemn those for whom there is now no condemnation for. Everyone's going to stand before God one day. He's our Lord. Every knee will bow before him. Every tongue will confess to him. And, and like, just so we're clear, you know, like Jesus isn't going to return one day and shake his head at you because you made the wrong decision on something you ate or drank. 
He's not going to return and, and, and finally set everyone across all centuries and cultures and continents straight on the tertiary issues. When he returns, that's not what he's going to be focused on. And if you think it is, you might be a legalist. What's going to matter isn't how you chose to school your kids. I'm not saying that doesn't matter. It definitely matters in this life, and you should be fully convinced. But when Jesus returns, he's not going to be like, all right, public schoolers, listen up. You know? I'm going to need you and all the D&D players and the teetotalers and the first century vegetarians and anyone who ever voted for a libertarian over here. we got some work to do, you know? <laughs> that's, not, that's not what he's going to do. No, he's going to come back and he's going to look upon all who called upon him as Lord and Savior, all who have been walking in faith, living in repentance in clear areas of sin, living lives fully convinced on tertiary issues and say, welcome into the joy of your master. All of you. Look at verse 17. He says, For the kingdom of God is not a matter of eating and drinking, but of righteousness and peace and joy in the Holy Spirit. This is what matters. Not bickering over the tertiary issues, not quarreling or dividing over opinions, but righteousness. Right standing with God through faith in Jesus. Saving righteousness, eternal peace, supernatural joy, all which are produced in us by the work of the Holy Spirit when we become a Christian. Now, Paul says at least five more things in this text about what to do when we disagree over a tertiary issue. I'm going to roll them up, though, into this. Pursue peace and mutual upbuilding. That's verse 19. Where to go? There it is. So then, let us pursue what makes for peace and mutual upbuilding. This is a word for the strong and the weak. Let us not pass a judgment. This is as we talked about through 13 through 21 and the stumbling blocks. This is where the stumbling blocks come in, right? Therefore, let us not pass judgment on one another any longer, but rather decide never to put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother. I know and am persuaded in the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself, but is unclean for anyone who thinks it unclean. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. And so the, the charge here is to never put a stumbling block or hindrance in the way of a brother that's rooted in love. Romans 14, in this way, is a practical outworking of the command of neighbor love in Romans 13. Verse 20, everything is indeed clean, but it is wrong for anyone to make another stumble by what he eats. It is good not to eat meat or drink wine or do anything that causes your brother to stumble. Stumbling again is not causing a brother or sister in Christ to sin in some way that the Bible clearly calls sin. That's not what's talked about here. Causing a brother to stumble in the context of Romans 14 is not causing a brother to give in to sexual immorality or get drunk, or covet, or commit idolatry. Causing a brother to stumble is not doing something that irritates your brother or sister in Christ, or angers them. In context, causing stumbling is living out your Christian freedom in a way that causes a weaker brother or sister to act against their conscience on a tertiary issue. I'll say that again. In context, causing stumbling is living out your Christian freedom in a way that causes a weaker brother or sister to act against their conscience 
on a tertiary issue. It's flaunting your freedom, flaunting your freedom in Christ and inciting someone else who doesn't have that same freedom of conscience to go against their conscience. In Paul's day, it was a strong, probably Gentile Christian saying something like this to the weak, mostly, most likely Jewish Christian. What are, you, what are you doing celebrating the Passover? We don't need to do that anymore. Jesus fulfilled all that. And the Jewish Christian saying, I don't know if that's right or not. Like, I agree that Jesus fulfilled it. Yeah, but like, maybe I still want to celebrate the Passover. Right? Like, the scripture is clear that Jesus fulfilled the Passover. But the scripture doesn't say, knock it off with that in your private practice anymore. And so the Jewish Christian might say, well, I'm not sure. Maybe, maybe we don't have to celebrate it. Maybe they're right. I guess I won't this year. And then later feeling guilty because he violated his or her conscience by not celebrating it. That's the strong causing the weak to stumble in Romans 14. There's a story told of Charles Spurgeon, the great 19th century English preacher. Uh, he was known a little bit for his love of cigars. That's one of the ways I know him anyway. You know, um, The story goes that one day Spurgeon was going to meet a group of his students. He had this pastor's college. He's going to meet a group of his students for just a day of like fun, spend the day together, hanging out. I don't know what they're going to do. Um, and, and he goes to meet them by the gate in the morning. And when he arrives, they're all standing around smoking pipes, cigars, you know, just ready for this relaxing day of fun together. And Spurgeon looks them over and he asks, are you ashamed to be smoking so early in the morning? And then he just waits. And then one by one, they snuffed out their pipes and smashed out their cigars. And when the last one was put out, Spurgeon pulled out his own cigar and lit it up and began to smoke it. Illustrating two things at once. One, they were violating their conscience. If they had been fully convinced on this tertiary issue, they wouldn't have put out their smokes. And two, Spurgeon demonstrated that out of a freedom in Christ, it was actually perfectly fine to smoke a cigar at 9 o'clock in the morning. Now, the illustration breaks down, right? I hope you see that it breaks down, because it breaks down because according to Romans 14 he could actually be causing them to stumble by lighting his own cigar. He was kind of flaunting his freedom too, right? So it breaks down. I hope you see that. Stumbling is acting against your conscience on a tertiary issue, an issue where there actually is freedom in Christ, but not always freedom of conscience. Let me give you one more example. I heard Sam Storms give this example. Sam Storms um, recently retired. He's a pastor of Bridgeway Church in Oklahoma City. And um, Sam Storms tells his stories uh, illustrating this principle in Romans 14 this way. He says, hey, if I go out to dinner with a group of Christians who I've just kind of newly met, like I don't know them very well, we go out to dinner together, and um, we're sitting at the table, and I order a beer with my dinner. And if I, I notice that one of these Christians who I don't know very well makes a face, like, you know, screws up his face somehow. I was like, well, that's, what's going on? Um, and I noticed that, right? He, he says, I, I might ask that brother in the kindest way that I can, excuse me, are you a weak Christian? <laughs> but, but listen, I mean, like, it, almost impossible to be like, yeah, I am, right? I mean, it would take an immense amount of self-awareness and humility. I'm not even sure if it's possible, right? But here's what he says. Um, I might offer to buy them a beer. 
And if the person responds saying, absolutely not, it, that would be completely inappropriate. No Christian should be drinking. You call yourself a pastor. And Storm says, um, if that's how he responds, that person is clearly a legalist, and I will order the beer, and I will enjoy it to the glory of God. <laughs> right? And we, we laugh at that. Because it's funny. Like, I, I laugh at it too. It's funny. Right? Um, but it's also not funny. It's funny and it's not funny. It actually might be the most loving thing that we can do to that person because they've got the gospel wrong. Like, it's funny and it's serious. <laughs> now, if the person responds, you know, I'm really not so sure, Pastor Storms. I don't know. I, like, I got some questions on, on this issue. I, would, I know some people do and some people don't. I was raised in a house where no one drank. And, and I saw a lot of good come from that. In fact, I've seen a lot of bad come out of the world where people do drink alcohol. And, and so, like, I, I'm trying to just understand and, and develop some things for myself and, and try to, you know, be, you know, fully convinced on this sort of stuff. And, and Storm says this. If that's how he answers, I would say, waiter, can I have your attention, please? I'd like to change my order to a Coke with lime. And, he says, I would likely kindly gently, lovingly share with this brother that I'm fully convinced that it is okay for me indeed to have a beer with my dinner. But I can tell that he's not. And I don't want to cause him to act against his conscience on an issue as menial as having a drink with dinner. Verse 15. For if your brother is grieved by what you eat, you're no longer walking in love. But what you eat, by what you eat, do not destroy the one for whom Christ died. I want to walk in love with this brother, right? So I'll defer. Do you see it? I'm fully convinced that I'm in the right, but I defer. Defy the legalist. Defy him. But defer to the weaker brother. Defer. I don't want to destroy the one for whom Christ died, which I... I I believe is a reference not to the other person's justification because I don't think there's any condemnation. They can't lose their salvation, right? But uh, instead, it's a, it would be damaging their sanctification. I want to disrupt the work that God's doing in this person. But then also verse 16. Do not let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. This, I think, cuts both ways too and calls us to mutual understanding. The weaker brother or sister needs to know when a stronger brother or sister is abstaining from something out of a desire to not put a stumbling block in their way. They need to know that. If we're not having these kinds of conversations, one weak Christian can, can hold an entire congregation hostage with respect to freedom in Christ. So the strong need to be able to calmly, gently, kindly articulate why they believe they have freedom in Christ. Likewise, the weak need to be able to calmly, gently, kindly articulate why they don't. But friends, I think we also understand weakness isn't best. We, we want people to grow in their freedom in Christ. Freedom in Christ is a good thing. I think that's part of the mutual upbuilding that Paul talks about in verse 19. That'll manifest in all kinds of different ways in people's life. It doesn't mean that we're all going to start smoking cigars. Most of you probably think they're disgusting. I happen to find them very tasty. Right? But but to both, don't let what you regard as good be spoken of as evil. 
It's a tertiary issue. So to demonize one side or the other isn't pursuing what makes for peace, nor is it seeking mutual upbuilding. And then finally, still under the heading of pursuing peace and mutual upbuilding is verse 20. And in some ways, it sums up the whole passage, right? Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. In applying Romans 14, we might sub in any tertiary issue there, right? Do not, for the sake of insert tertiary issue, destroy the work of God. This is where we see the significance and importance of what Paul is talking about in this great chapter of the Bible. God the Father from eternity past crafted a plan with God the Son. A plan that involved the salvation of many from all tribes, all tongues, all languages. People who carry with them all kinds of cultural conditioning from a multitude of cultures across centuries and continents. One people though, united by Christ. The relationship of the strong and the weak, therefore, isn't just a little debate over in-house issues. How we resolve these issues is of crucial importance since nothing less than God's saving promise, purpose, and work is involved. Friends, the gospel of Jesus unites us despite our disagreements over tertiary issues. And the same gospel of Jesus guards us from dividing over these tertiary issues as we welcome one another, as Christ has welcomed us, as we're fully convinced that we and and our brother and sister are living for and honoring God, as we refrain from passing judgment on brothers and sisters on matters of opinion because that's not our job. And as we instead humbly and graciously pursue peace and mutual upbuilding of all God's people. Let's pray. Father, again, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your spirit. We pray that your spirit would continue to work in us in and through your word. Edify us and strengthen us as a body. Strengthen us against possible divisions and help each one of us to pursue mutual peace and upbuilding with each other. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this audio from Two Pillars Church. Feel free to share this audio with others, but please do not alter or edit the content in any way. For more information about Two Pillars Church, please visit www.twopillarschurch.com.